Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. Are you all familiar with what Joseph was supposed to do? Here's what Joseph was supposed to do. According to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, you could read it for yourself. There are rules about what happens when a woman is engaged to a man and then becomes pregnant before the marriage is consummated. They're written explicitly in there. If the woman gets pregnant in a town or a city, both the man who slept with her and the woman have to be brought to the town gate and stoned to death. Because, and this is scripture, she could have cried for help if she needed it in a town. If she got pregnant in a field somewhere, we just stoned the man because she may have been crying for help, but the likelihood of people being around was so small that they would stone the man and not the woman. If that woman was not engaged to be married, but was just a young woman who hadn't yet been married, the book of Deuteronomy tells us that the man has to pay 50 shekels to her father and then marry her. And scripture says he is never allowed to divorce that woman. That's what scripture tells us about what Joseph was supposed to do. It was within his rights to take Mary to the edge of town and stone her to death. That's crazy, right? And appalling a little bit and terrifying. But that's what Joseph could have done by the Holy Scriptures in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, what he should have done by the code of scripture in Deuteronomy. Instead, Joseph decides to quietly break off the engagement and just move on. There's a heartbreaking cycle in scripture of violence begetting more and more violence and heartbreak begetting more and more heartbreak. And what we see from the very first chapters of Genesis all the way through most of what we know as the, the Old Testament, our Hebrew scriptures, is we see a sort of downroad spiral for all of humanity. We see the emergence of a faithful community that eventually gets pulled towards evil, towards selfishness, towards the pursuit of power over and above the pursuit of God's faithfulness. And we see a kingdom that God was once supporting and celebrating and honoring. And 
lose every sense of faithfulness and disappear to history, living in exile. That's the pattern that we see. What God created is good and faithful and just and lovely. Somehow, we see begin a downward spiral. Until the prophets start talking about something, some new, fresh hope that emerges on the horizon. And if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, and I don't mean, last week we did sort of a run-through of all of Scripture and lessons and carols, but if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you may remember some of the stories that we touched on. You may remember some of the characters that we lean towards. You remember reading Habakkuk together, where we read about a prophet who is grieving the loss of his community, who said that he would stand on the edge, he would stand on who would stand on the wall of the city and look for God doing something new. And God's response, telling Habakkuk that something new is emerging on the horizon, something faithful and good, something that will draw humanity back into what was intended for humanity, of justice, of mercy, of compassion, of hope, of love. But first, we have to go through this terror to get there. A great pruning has to happen. We read the same story in others, and actually, I, I want you to bear with me, because I, I think this is important. I want to read the first uh, 17 verses of the book of Matthew. And I, I'm probably going to interrupt myself while I'm reading. I'll try to make that clear, because I, I think it's important. This is the genealogy of Jesus. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Do you remember Tamar? Tamar, Tamar's husband died because he was doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah tried to get her, his younger son to marry Tamar so that she could stay in the family and bear children for his oldest son, essentially keeping that lineage. That younger son refused to marry Tamar. And so Tamar, in an act of desperation, dressed herself as a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law, Judah in order to bear two children to Judah. Judah actually says we should burn her for what she's done. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashash. Nashash was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? Oh, man. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Do you remember Ruth, a foreign woman, circled, pulled into the family of God through some deceit, 
Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Do you remember the story of Uriah and that woman's name, Bathsheba, who David had killed on the front lines because he had slept with this woman? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. I love that our scripture names that. I hate that Bathsheba's name was left out of it, but I'm glad the injustice was named first. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos the father of Josiah. Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was at the time of the exile to Babylon. Those kings each represent a downward spiral in the kingdom's faithfulness to God. Each of these men named in this lineage were people who each generation did a little bit worse. They conceded a little bit more to the neighbors. They garnered a little bit more power for themselves. They oppressed the, the, uh, the poor in their communities a little bit more. They enslaved just a few more people, each generation a little bit worse. And then we come to the time of exile in Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel. Salathiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Akim. Akim the father of Iliud. Iliud the father of Iliad. Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile in Babylon to the Christ. That's how our Gospel of Matthew starts. Most of these names I have no context for. But the ones I do have context for, the ones that I do have some understanding of who they are, their stories are not quite inspirational. Their stories are off-putting, frustrating even, horrifying if we're being honest, some of these characters. And I think sometimes when we're in the midst of what feels like a downward spiral, it is so easy to lose any sense of hope that once existed in our hearts. It's so easy to read about these characters being completely unredemptive in every way. 
It's so easy to think about these, these people as being so deeply flawed or deeply broken or society being so deeply broken that there could be no possible way of hope to emerge out of it. Especially when we think about the number of generations that had to wait for it to come to pass. Especially in the latter half of that genealogy. I don't, I don't know many of those names, and maybe Jim Seckman will have a better uh, description of who those folks are in the conversation after worship today. But my, to my knowledge, most of these people are not really described in history. Most of these people appear on a footnote and in this genealogy, and that's it. That's all we know of their lives. Which in some ways feels so, I don't know if sad's the right word, but it can feel sometimes like a whole generation gets left out of the story with the exception of the footnote that points to the people who were a part of it. And I think sometimes, especially now, we feel like everything needs to be fixed, not just in my lifetime, but in this particular moment. And if it doesn't get fixed in this particular moment, then God must have abandoned me. We experience grief or pain or loss. And just by experiencing that suffering, we want to push God to the side or even use that as a reason to describe how God just isn't present anymore. And I imagine that impulse being strong for people who are living in exile or for a people who are living in the occupation of Rome. It's so easy to think everything has come crashing to an end. It's so easy to give up. It's so easy to lose sight of the horizon. It's so easy. Um, I made what is probably not a great decision of... I'm making a homemade gift for everybody in my family, and so because of that, I have a sinus infection from sanding wood without a mask, which if you have been around, you know this is the second time I've done this to myself in the course of like two months. So I don't learn. Uh, but one of the gifts that I'm making required me to buy uh, some little figurines, uh, which I won't describe because I know my mom is watching right now, so uh, can't, can't get into it. Uh, but I had to buy some things. And y'all, I'm so used to ordering from Amazon where I get an immediate response saying, your package will arrive on this day by this time. And so I ordered from an independent like person. And y'all, I panicked. Because you know what I didn't get? I didn't get an immediate email confirming my order or telling me when it was going to be delivered. And I was horrified. Like, I looked in the frequently asked questions page of this of this person. I tried to get a sense of, like, they have five-star reviews across the board for what they're doing, but I don't understand why they're not communicating with me. And, like, two hours later, I got my confirmation email with a tracking number. But for those two hours, I'm embarrassed to say 
I was like, I just lost my money. Because I need it right now. I need my confirmation immediately. And I know that for me, and I, I hope I'm not just speaking for myself, we do that with God too. We feel like we need an immediate response to anything that we lift up as a prayer or a concern. And if we don't get an immediate response right away, then it must mean God isn't here for me. God's abandoned me. Or God hates me. And then depending on your personality, and I know that both spectrums exist in this room, we either assume that God hates me and we get anxious about what we might have done wrong that would make God not love me the way that I feel like I should be loved. But now I know I don't deserve the love, right? I I know some of you know exactly the spiral of self-talk that I'm in right now. Or we get on the other side where we're just like, you know what? Screw God. I tried with God, it didn't work out, so now I'm moving on. (laughs) Maybe that resonates more, I don't know. And whether we would ever say that or not, I I don't know. I think most of us just, maybe we just stop praying as often. Or we stop reading scripture as often. Or we drift away from some of the spiritual habits that we've had because it just, it wasn't working, so... This just isn't a thing that will work. And I can only imagine what would have happened. For people like Joseph, who come from a complicated family lineage, amen? If you come from a complicated family lineage, may you find yourself in good company with Joseph. It is a complicated family lineage with a lot of really messed up people, with a lot of trauma that just continues to sort of cycle over and over. But what we see when we get to Joseph is that he was a man of faith. And he, you can see where Jesus gets his ethic, right? When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. But what I say to you, is to turn the other cheek, to offer your coat, to walk the extra mile. And isn't that exactly what Joseph does? When the law told him that stoning was appropriate, not only appropriate, that was the direction in Scripture. Joseph had internalized his faithfulness and the trust and the good news that is to come enough to listen well to the angel in his dreams and to disregard the parts of his faith story that were oppressive and cruel. You have heard it said, the man and woman should be stoned at the town gates. But I say unto you, I will walk by your side. Joseph, as a man of faith, gave up in many ways, gave up his life in order to follow in the footsteps of Mary and their child, Jesus. Isn't that the perfect picture of what biblical masculinity should be? Giving up for the lives of the people who are caught up in the story of God. 
Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org.